Welcome to Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer, where cancer survivors, caregivers, and others touched by cancer share their stories. The Max Mallory Foundation presents this podcast in honor and memory of Max Mallory, who died at age 22 from testicular cancer. I'm your host, Joyce Lofstrom, a young adult and adult cancer survivor, and Max's mom. So my guest today is a very special guest for me and the Max Mallory Foundation. His name is Adam Johnstone. He is a testicular cancer survivor, and he's going to tell us more about his journey with cancer. But he was also Max's Emmerman Angel. And if you listen to our previous podcast, we did talk with um, Johnny Emmerman, who founded Emmerman Angels. But today, I really want to focus on Adam and his story. So, Adam, thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. Hi, thank you for having me. So, let's just start and uh, learn more about your journey with testicular cancer. Can you tell us what happened and when and just any details you'd like to provide? Sure. So... I'll start before my actual diagnosis. So when I was in late high school, I had an issue where I was hanging out with friends and eventually it felt like I sort of sat wrong. So so it sort of felt like I sat on a testicle and that it hurt and it was a bit it was a bit heavier slightly to the a bit lower than the other and of course, I chalked it up to, oh, wow, I must have just sat wrong. And then as I was going through that last year or so of high school, it began to grow and grow. And at that point, I didn't want to think it was anything serious. And so I didn't do anything about it. And by the fall of 2013, I had my right testicle the size of about a softball. Oh my. Yeah, very problematic. And at that point, being the son of a single mother, it's sort of uncomfortable to talk to a parent who might not, who, who you're afraid might not understand. And it, it's scary to say that something is wrong with your private parts when you're talking to a family member, especially a woman. If I had a brother or a father, I'm sure it would have been a bit more of a comfortable conversation. And growing up in sort of a, a middle class, like lowerish middle class family to a single mom, I wasn't sure what our health insurance situation was either. So I didn't want to face any of those sort of difficult factors, you know? Yes, I do. So I kept sweeping it under the rug, even though it got to the point where people were noticing this bulge in my pants and high schoolers and like. 19-year-olds being 19-year-olds, they all thought it had to do with my size and not the fact that I had testicular cancer. And no one really wanted to confront me about that. And I didn't want to confront anyone about that, so I just let it happen. So in January 2014, I had stopped going to New Mexico Tech and moved back to Albuquerque so I could return to UNM for music. And about a week before the semester started, I had some friends over and we were just having a good old time. We had, we got pizza and all of a sudden I felt this dizziness and this urge to vomit. And I didn't feel any nauseousness in my stomach. It was all in my head. It it was this dizziness of the head, a lot of vertigo. And so I vomited a lot. 
that that was a Friday. I remember the time the time sequence quite well. It was a Friday, so we eventually called it, and everyone's like, "Get better from your food poisoning." And the next day, still had the dizziness, wasn't vomiting anymore, but I was still very dizzy, and I had developed quite a bad headache, a migraine, and. I struggled to get anyone to bring me any sort of help or food. I had reached out to quite a few of my friends, and only one person, after a lot of <laughs> searching, eventually brought me some food and Tylenol, because I thought that I had food poisoning and that I just had to wait it out. I sat with this migraine and went to bed thinking everything was going to pass, and I remember that night very well. It's one of the last few things that I really remember, just laying there in my bed in pain, because it felt like my head was being held on, like, against the corner of a sidewalk and just being kicked right in the back of my head, right right along my neck, where my neck and my head meet. So right along my, my back hairline, pretty much. And it just felt like I was being kicked repeatedly over and over and over. I tried to sit with it, and then... I remember at about 1 a.m., I realized that this probably isn't normal, and the fact that it feels this bad means I should probably go to the emergency room or something. So I, again, reached out to friends and couldn't find anyone to take me to the urgent to urgent care, or em- the emergency room, that is. And eventually, one of my mom's friends happened to be up at 2.30 a.m., ish and agreed to pick me up and drive me to the emergency room which i did and so i eventually i sat there for another six hours because emergency rooms are pretty slow sometimes and eventually i had a few doctors come in and out and they didn't really check any part of my body other than my head because that's where all the pain was was the head and they came in and they said oh hey do you have any swelling in your testicles and that's when they told me that I had testicular cancer, which came as a shock. Not not necessarily a shock because I had this softball-sized testicle for so long, but definitely not what I wanted to hear, of course. And my mom was out of the country. She was on vacation, and she's the only family I have in the country. So I called my best friend at the time, who never wakes up at 8 a.m., but he woke up at 8 a.m., and we... I told him, and we sort of just sat there on the phone in disbelief. And then I was way too exhausted to t- call anyone else, so I texted them, and no one really believed me. They thought I was me- I was pulling their leg, because it's it's crazy, you know. Like, oh, that migraine that I had turns out to be from testicular cancer. You know, a lot of people don't want to think that's what happens to their friend. Well, especially when you're young, you're so young at 19, and that's not a usual diagnosis to have cancer. So. Yeah. Exactly. And eventually I got admitted, got brought into, well, went through all the processes, like an MRI, CT scan. They did an ultrasound on my testicle. And it it was so large that they thought they couldn't find my left testicle because they thought it was part of the cancerous testicle at first. That's how sort of problematic it was. And then I eventually got moved around, got put on my pain meds. They determined that I had cancer in my testicle my abdominal lymph nodes, my liver, both of my lungs, and in my brain. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, yeah. That spread over the time that yeah. you were pondering and trying to figure out what to do. So. Yep. And pretty much, I don't know the details of my liver. I know that in my right lung, I just had a bunch of small tumors, 
that sort of speckled my lung, and my left lung had a grapefruit-sized tumor, which is crazy to believe that that was inside of me. And then my brain had quite a few right there in the back of my head where my hairline is, and then a few sort of sprinkled across the rest of my brain, which is problematic, (laughs) to say the least. Yes, yes, I know. Max had that too, so... yeah. I remember that that was one of the things that we talked about a lot and and struggled with because it's all the other parts of your body are scary to have it in, but when it's in your brain, it's really frightening. So what happened next? What did they deal with first? They being the doctors when they had identified all of your cancer locations. Well, so they determined that a brain surgery was probably the first thing that should happen because. That is what was causing me these horrible head pains, you know, sort of that being kicked in the head feeling was from those tumors in the back of my head and sort of a lot of fluid in my brain that wasn't moving around as it should have. So my inner cranial pressure was rising. Around this point, I sort of forget everything that happened. I had friends come in and hang out with me a lot, and I don't even remember this last day, but I stopped breathing because of the the inner cranial pressure in my brain. It just... I I just stopped breathing, and they had to drill a hole in my head to take out all that fluid and restore my consciousness. And like I said, I have no memory of any of this, but I know my friends were there, and it was frightening. Yes, that would be very frightening. Yeah, even like my tough guy friends definitely sort of lost it there from what they've told me. Yeah, so they drilled a hole in my head, and they decided that that brain surgery that they wanted to do in a couple of weeks couldn't wait any longer. And I went in for an emergency brain surgery. They cut out the tumors in the back of my head. I have a pretty large candy cane-shaped scar on the back of my head from it. I don't really remember the next week or so. I was sleeping a lot, of course. I was stable, but I'm sure it was very frightening for everyone around me. And I mean, I was frightened, but I I could hardly comprehend what was going on. I was on so many drugs and just in disbelief and in pain. Right. So after that, they planned on giving me my first round of chemo in, in while I was still in the hospital, recovering from my brain surgery. And this is sort of, I don't know, this might be sort of a private detail, but I think it's important to note that they gave me a container for my sperm and said, hey, we're starting you on chemotherapy. There's a chance that you won't be able to have kids after this. So you should try to preserve something. But I had gotten a brain surgery a week ago, maybe two. I, I I couldn't even hold a banana without falling asleep. So I lost that chance to preserve any of my sperm. You know, I think that's probably... A common situation for men in this in dealing with testicular cancer. I know Max had the same thing, and he he was in the same boat. He was he unable to do it. It was so quick, and he had to do it that day, that minute. And you know, it's um, I want to say it's not fair, and it isn't. But that's a lot to ask of any person. Yeah, especially yeah, yeah. It's a lot to ask for any person, and it's also. There's really not much that can be done about that, you know, because our health has to come before our potential children in the future, you know, because if we don't make it to that point, then there was no point. So 
anyways, uh, they started me on chemotherapy. And at this point, I could not walk. It was just impossible. They'd put me on shifting, these shifting slab type things, I don't know what to call them, that would move at an angle to try to to simulate walking for me, or at least standing up, because my balance was just gone. I had lost my sense of balance completely. So couldn't walk, was on chemotherapy. And at this point, I still had my hair. They shaved half my hair to do my surgery, but the other half was still long and wild, which is pretty pretty funny sight. Now that now that I take now that I can look at it from a less emotional point of view, it was pretty funny. But I was very upset about it, and they moved me to physical therapy so I could pretty much relearn how to walk, at least gain my sense of balance back. So I spent about a week in physical therapy and. It was definitely a very difficult time because they took me through the physical parts. They took me through occupational therapy, speech therapy, and some of those I didn't really need. But, you know, they had to do it to make sure I was good on that. But it was really hard being a 19-year-old around a bunch of much older people who are suffering and sort of going through the same thing as me and I'm the I'm the young one so I feel I felt very weird and I felt really depressed and even though I had my friends and my mom there I felt really alone and it was really hard now did had they removed your testicle yet or you you were just no. starting chemo so okay yep this was one surgery in out of five and one round of chemo in out of four wow yeah so then I finished my other three rounds of chemo by around March. So this is from January to, I think, mid-March. And they finally took me off steroids at that point. So I was finally able to drive again. So that was about three months of just no driving. And steroids also did the typical things they do to someone's emotions. It was definitely very a very rough and like roller coaster-esque patch of emotion for me. Obviously because of the cancer diagnosis and treatment, but but all of that with the medicine that I had to take every day. So then in April, they gave me an orchiectomy and removed my right testicle finally. Definitely the easiest surgery out of the five, to say the least. Very easy. Definitely very, very frightening to look down when I pee and just see this bloody gash that was very upsetting and discomforting for me. And then after this, we had to tackle the lungs, which were not easy. Like I said, uh, the right lung had a bunch of little peppered tumors, and the left one had a grapefruit-sized tumor. So we started meeting with my future lung surgeon, and at first we weren't even sure if it was viable. We weren't even sure if they'd be able to remove enough of my lungs while also keeping me alive. So for a while, it was sort of a question of can we even do this operation or do we just have to keep you on surveillance until you eventually succumb to it you know oh my i didn't know that adam gosh yeah that's a lot to deal with yeah and so a lot of a lot of meetings back and forth and eventually there, there was a time where like oh yeah you will do it but you might be on oxygen for the rest of your life or you might even end up on an iron lung i think this was that was the first time since my my very first run-in with cancer in the emergency room where I had to accept the fact that I might die and that nothing was in my control. And 
it was rough. I was still not even 20 at this point. This was June 2014. Eventually, they decided, yeah, we're going to do a, a long at a time, and we're just going to hope for the best. So I got my right lung surgery, and both lung surgeries were extremely painful because to do it, they have to spread apart your ribs from the side to get into your lungs. So when you wake up, you're not only in pain from surgery in general, but your ribs are so sore from what they had to do. So my whole right side of my body was just in like torturous pain. And I also had two tubes going into the side, right, sort of to the right of my belly button on my side of my abdomen. And of course, after a day or so, a day, a day or two, they start to encourage you to start sitting up, walking, moving, and the pain was just excruciating. Now, were they, but they were able to get the tumors out of your lungs? Right. Right. They were able to remove everything. And then that would, well, then eventually they did the left lung, which the upper third with the grapefruit-sized tumor. And same deal, same exact thing, a lot of pain. And after that, I was on oxygen. So we had an oxygen machine in the house. We had portable oxygen for me. And whenever I had to go hang out with, or whenever I wanted to hang out with friends, which of course I want to do to keep some semblance of normalcy in my life, I had to carry around a portable oxygen container. And I mean, I looked like a, I felt like I looked like a freak with my barely returning hair, but my facial hair was more, definitely came in faster than my normal hair. And just my portable oxygen, and I would normally wear a beanie to, make me feel better about my hair. And I think the the thing that made me feel the most self-conscious was right after my brain surgery, I think I weighed about 160 pounds, which obviously I wasn't eating. So I was very, pretty skinny for a guy who's 5'10". And after chemotherapy, I came out weighing about 210 pounds. I gained about 50 pounds over three months. And why was that? A lot of people associate chemo with just vomiting, and it's really a person by person person by person basis. I had a, I had the VIP treatment. I don't remember what that means in terms of that. That was the chemical. It was a VIP. It didn't ever make me want to vomit. If anything, it made me. I think it was mostly because I was on the steroids at the same time, so I was super hungry, and I would just eat and eat. And when you're on chemotherapy, I wasn't doing outpatient chemotherapy either. I was. I came in on a Monday and I left on a Sunday or a Monday. So I was there 24-7 for a whole week. And that whole time you're being pumped with fluids. So I gained a lot of water weight and a lot of other weight. So by the time that I had my lung surgeries, I was walking around mostly bald with scraggly facial hair, 50 pounds heavier and with an oxygen machine everywhere I went. And I felt like an absolute freak. It was just very hard. It had to be. I mean, just listening to you and what you had to go through, it's it would be hard for anybody, uh, especially yeah. someone so young. So I admire you. You've really done a lot, Adam. So Yeah, thank you. And my doctor also was very hesitant. My lung surgeon was very hesitant to prescribe any pain medicine. So I remember when I was sitting around in my living room once, I started coughing and a combination of the pain and the panic, I just couldn't stop coughing and I could never catch my breath. So we had to call an ambulance. So that, that was my one and only ambulance ride. 
and I went back in, and pretty much they determined that they didn't prescribe enough pain medicine to me. So all that could have been avoided, but better to not risk it with opiates, I suppose. But that was definitely very frightening, because I wasn't sure what was happening. But by the time I got to the hospital, I was pretty stable. Finally, they needed to, to do my retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, the RPLND, which is definitely one of the more grotesque yes, <laughs> surgeries. I'm sure a lot of people listening know about it or may have an idea of what it is, but they slice open your abdomen from the bottom of your rib cage down to around your waist, and they pretty much have to remove all of your organs there to get to your lymph nodes that are along your spine, since they obviously can't go in from the back. Following that surgery, you have to... Well, actually, even before the surgery, it's so hard, because you have to go a day without eating. You have to you have to drink Go Lightly, which a lot of people know as the drink that you have to do drink before a colonoscopy, and it's the most disgusting vile liquid on this planet. Yes, I agree. I agree. I've had the colonoscopy, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's just it's it was horrible. And you go into surgery at 6 a.m. and you have to get IVs, and your skin is like a desert. It's dry and it's empty. So getting those IVs was incredibly painful because the more water you have in your system, the, the less discomforting and painful they are. So. They went through with that surgery, and I woke up, and the way that they get you, your, your whole digestive system sort of restarts, so you can't even have food for a couple of days. You start on ice chips, and then eventually water, and then eventually popsicles, and then broths, and then light solids, and then eventually you will get back to your normal diet. And so the pain is horrible. They also gave me a central line for this so they could administer medicine. Yeah, I mean, it was just pain, just laying there in pain. And you're tired and you're hungry and you're thirsty. And you just sort of have to sit with it. And I think after a few days, eventually I was feeling up for actual solid food. And I ate it and I vomited it all up. And I... Pretty much the next week, I stayed in there just vomiting everything I ate back up. It was just in pain, and I couldn't keep anything down. And I didn't see an end to it. It was definitely, I think, most harrowing of my surgical experiences. Yes, I know. And Max had the same kind of feeling about it. And I think it's, as you described, Adam, it's the nature of that surgery when they cut through your abdominal muscles and move everything around and it's it's a very um oh, what's the word for it invasive surgery so yeah, it takes absolutely. a while to get better so yeah. was that number five then that was your was that your last surgery yep that was my final surgery and it's actually pretty important because about five days ago i believe august 26th was the day of my rplnd in 2014 the 26th of the 27th and that eventually after that, they did a checkup and I had no traces of cancer. So I consider that August 26th or 27th, that is my remission anniversary. Or at this point, it's considered cured because it's been over three or five years. So I just passed the six year marker about a week ago. Well, that's wonderful. Congrats. I just think that's, you know, listening to you and what you've been through. So I know I'm a cancer survivor too. When you 
reach that five-year mark, it's a big deal. I mean, it's very good. <laughs> right. So, so you got through it all. And so then after the RPLND, what, what happened next? Just kind of back to school or? Yep. I took until December off. I sort of just sat there and worked on getting better, worked on figuring out what I want to do. So when I moved back to Albuquerque, I wanted to go to do music. And after all of this, I realized that I still really wanted to work in the sciences, specifically biology. So I ended up going back to New Mexico Tech, living in Socorro for a year. And sort of, so I was living in a tiny town about an hour south of Albuquerque. It's a college town, so most of the population has something to do with the college. So I didn't really have, I had a few friends and I was a cancer survivor living on my own learning for about a year there. I, of course, I had had, I've had multiple scares, especially in that 2015, 2016 period, because some swelling sort of occurs on your remaining testicle. But uh, some swelling occurs there and it's frightening because at first, the, the first thing you think is, oh God, is this another tumor? So I had to go get that checked out. And of course they're like, yeah, this is just what happens. This is just swelling. I've had my checkups and that's been pretty much my entire cancer journey. Well, I really appreciate that you shared so much with us about that. It's it's a long journey, and I think listening to you, I I, uh, I think probably going to your brain first was a good choice just to get rid of that, and then, you know, that's over with, and you can address the rest of it. But I'm not a medical person. I'm just reacting to what you've told me, so. Right. I mean, with the pressures that it, the tumors were putting on my brain. Um, it was definitely very scary. And if they didn't take care of that first, I don't think I would be here today. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause Max, you know, he had everything gone cancer wise, except the spots in his brain. So, well, tell me now about your decision to be an Emmerman angel. What, what made you decide to do that? Well, so, my mother is a uh, she's very active in the testicular cancer community, so she's always been connecting with people. And she eventually told me about the program. And I'm usually not a mentor type of person, I feel like, but I really, after everything, I felt like I didn't want someone like me to go through it alone. So I signed up for it. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So when eventually in October I got connected with Max, it was it was definitely a powerful moment for me. Yeah, that's good, and I think that is a very good point to make from you because you have gone through this, and then you were able to help someone else that was going down that same journey. Um, right. So how about now? <clears throat> Six years later. You talked a little bit about your schooling. What are you doing now? Anything you want to share? I've jumped back and forth a lot. Like I said, I did biology right after, and then I did music for two years. And then I thought I wanted to do communications and writing. And I gave that about a semester and realized that was not for me. And then I came back to biology. I realized that I wanted to give it a shot. I had some progress in my courses, and I wanted to just finish it. I was a lot. I was about the same length through my biology and my music degrees at this point. 
so I decided I wanted to try out biology again and get back into the sciences. At first, it started with this desire to give back, you know, the a plan for medical school and the want to work on working with humans to improve their living. So in 20, fall 2018, I went through that started or I started that and here I am this is my last semester of my biology under undergraduate degree I realized I want nothing to do with medicine I don't think medicine, medical school is the pick for me at all I've been very interested in ecology and behavioral biology and neurobiology so I'm planning to go to grad school for one of those things right now one of my main thoughts is neuroethology which is the the neural basis of behavior in animals. And so I'm I'm on my last semester of my undergraduate, so that's what is coming next for me. Wow. We'll have to have you back in a year. You can tell us what's happening. So that's a very fascinating field. So my last question is, you know, we've been through your journey with cancer and where you are now and lots ahead for you. Really exciting career path. What advice do you have for any young man who might be listening that thinks he has testicular cancer or, you know, has had it or not really has had it? I mean, people who think they might have it, what would you tell them? Well, first, if you have testicles, you should check them often. Even if you don't have any fears, you should check them regularly and understand. You have to understand your biology, your, your anatomy to understand when something is wrong. So I think before you even worry, I think the first thing you need to do is make sure you're checking yourself. And if you notice any abnormalities, it doesn't always mean testicular cancer, but you need to go and get it checked out. Don't do what I did and wait for a year and some, because you'll go from slight amount of of, uh, testicular pain and back pain to a testicle the size of a softball. So I think it's really important to If you have any inkling of fear, no matter what, you should go and get it checked out immediately. And there's there's no such thing as playing it too safe when it comes to testicular cancer or any cancer. If you have any fear, make sure you check yourself out and then go to a doctor and, and press for questions. Because I had back pain and I'd gone to my primary care physician. And he pretty much just said, oh, back pain, just go to physical therapy. You, you're you growing up and you're in marching band, so you probably just have back pains from that. Push for, push for understanding. Because if I had just said, hey, my testicle's a bit larger than normal, or I feel a bump, then I would have potentially avoided year a year of struggle and pain and just had an orchiectomy and maybe an RPLND rather than five major surgeries and four exhausting rounds of chemotherapy. That's great advice. And you're right to talk to somebody and, and ask questions. I think that's uh, a really uh, important two-pronged uh, direction to take because the questions can often give you the answers that you're looking for. So, Right. And if I can get on my soapbox for a brief moment. No, please do. Please do. I think that 
if you have someone who's been affected by testicular cancer or any cancer, I think it's important to know that a lot of people aren't just afraid of the physical consequences. They're afraid of the financial consequences because that's part of why I didn't go to a doctor. It was so scary to think that I might run into bills for something, even if it wasn't cancer, the bills for the just the checkup. And if it was cancer, I, I remember getting a six-figure bill for my first couple of weeks in the hospital. Luckily, insurance retroactively took care of it, but it, it's frightening to see a bill with six digits for a brain surgery, some chemotherapy, one round of chemotherapy, and a week's hospital stay. I think it's important to fight to make sure that no one has to worry about that, because I guess my experience has sort of radicalized me. I was very lucky to have health insurance that retroactively covered what I had and covered me throughout all of it. But a, a lot of people aren't as lucky, and I think it's important to fight for health insurance for everyone, or at least more. But whatever your beliefs are, I'm a proponent of Medicare for all because I think it's essential. But even just making more accessible health care, I think, is something that even if you're a caregiver or just an ordinary person who is worried, I think it's important to advocate to fight so that everyone has the right to be alive and survive through these things. I am with you on that, Adam, 100%. I agree. Medicare for all, universal health care is what we need. So, again, another topic we could come back to talk about sometime. So I really appreciate that you joined us today. Thanks so much for joining me today on Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer from the Max Mallory Foundation. We have a website, and it's at maxmalloryfoundation.com, where you can learn more about testicular cancer, donate, and also send your ideas for guests on the podcast. And for spelling, Mallory is M-A-L-L-O-R-Y. Please join me next time for Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer. Thank you.